Good morning. Good morning. Good to see you all. Hey, if we haven't met yet, my name is Jeff Pruitt, and uh, my wife and I have been here a little over two years and just have loved being a part of the Element family. We uh, serve as co-leaders with uh, the McCools, with Sarah and her husband, of a gospel community that meets in the middle of the week that uh, we've just loved being a part of. Um, And I'm excited to get to share from God's Word with you this morning. Uh, One quick announcement on top of the baptism thing. If you have uh, youth that normally come on Sunday nights, we're asking that everybody just show up to the baptism, and we're not going to do a youth thing on top of that tonight. So that is your youth event, is come to the baptisms. So hopefully we'll see you there. Um, As we get into the message, if you want to, um, on each of these communion tables, there is a little handout that has a summary of kind of the the message. It has the main passages that we'll be covering and some place to take notes. And then it also has some uh, questions that you can uh, go through on your own or better yet in a gospel community or with friends. You can kind of dig into uh, these passages a little deeper and look at how they affect our lives. Uh, Also, as we're going through this, um, if you forgot your Bible today, uh, or you don't have one, there are Bibles in the seats in front of you underneath, and you are welcome to use them. And if you don't have a Bible, please take one as our gift to you. We'd love for you to have one. And the last little logistics is uh, if you want to track along on your phone through the Version Bible app, uh, there's a way to do that. You just click on the More menu down in the bottom and then choose Events from what pops up, and Element will show up as one of the churches that's near you. And you can click on it and you'll get the verses, the um, notes, and all the stuff that goes along with our message today. All right. Well, would you guys stand with me and we will read our passage for this morning. Acts chapter 2, verse 4 says this. It says, They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Let me pray for us. Lord, I just thank you for this morning and this chance to be together, um, to hear from your word. Thank you for giving us your word to teach us, to guide us, to show us who you are, to show us um, how you desire to uh, relate to us and and how that can happen. And Lord, you teach us so much through it. I just pray that we would uh, learn from you, learn from your word this morning, and that um, we would be a people who love to be together who love to be in in your presence and who love hearing through you. Lord, I uh, just pray you would guide our conversation tonight, or tonight, I pray that you would guide our time this morning and that you would be the one that teaches us, um, be the one who uh, brings the things to our minds that we need to hear and that we need to uh, hold on to. And I pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, today we're wrapping up our summer series, which has been called I Believe in Miracles. If you're new with us, we've actually spent the last few months going through uh, several of the miracles that are documented in the Bible, and we've been trying to look at each of them with a deeper look at the why behind them. We've been trying to figure out, kind of looking into the implications of why would God do this? Why would he step into the natural order of things and disrupt it? and do things that upset our natural laws. It would seem that if he set those laws in place and wants to now break them, he'd have a good reason behind doing a miracle that steps outside of 
his creation. And the miracle we're going to look at today really has some great reasons behind it. We're going to look at how God put his spirit into his people starting in the first century and rippling forward all the way to today and talk about how it affects us today. So go ahead and turn in your Bibles, if you're not there already, to Acts chapter 2. Just to give you some background before we get to this passage, uh, this miracle happens shortly after what's called the Ascension. And the Ascension is where Jesus literally ascends up into the sky, up to the Father, um, in front of his disciples. And they're all left standing around looking at him going up to heaven and kind of looking like you would if you let your balloon go out in front of Chuck E. Cheese and you just kind of, what happened? Um, There are some big Uh, reasons for the ascension. And we covered those in a series a little bit ago called Didn't See That Coming. And if you want to go pull that up online later and see a little bit more about that, that'd be a great place to dig into that. Well, right before the ascension, right before Jesus floated up to the Father, he told the disciples to wait for the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit was coming. And so by now, as we get to the passage we're going to read, they've been hanging out for a few days and nothing's happened. Everybody is gathering into town for this annual spring feast where the Jews every year would gather together and present their first crops of wheat or their first harvest um, to God as a sacrifice, as a way to worship God and show that it all depends on him. And this huge party was often called the Feast of Harvest or Pentecost. And it was about 50 days after the Passover, which is when Jesus was crucified. So we're looking at a couple months after Jesus was crucified is where we are. That's our setting. The Jerusalem's packed with all these visitors for this feast, and the disciples are together waiting for something. It turns out to be the Holy Spirit, but they're not really sure what to be looking for. Let's read the events which were written down for us by Luke, uh, starting in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. So try to put yourself into this scene for a minute. You're hanging out with the other disciples. We're not really told what they're doing, but they're probably just doing usual guy things, right? They're probably sitting around the barbecue, talking about fishing, maybe thinking about their fantasy football draft. I don't know. Um, They're doing something. They're hanging out. And then all of a sudden, Luke tells us that there's this sound like a mighty rushing wind. There's no actual wind, but it's a sound that's so loud, it's like a tornado or a hurricane, which I've never been in, but I hear are very, very loud. Um, And after this sound, uh, it was so loud that we later learned that thousands of people come running to try to figure out what they just heard, what just happened. And for the disciples, after they hear this sound, the passage says something like tongues of fire appear and rest on each one of them. When Luke says divided tongues of fire, he could possibly be trying to describe something like a big ball of fire showing up and then breaking apart and spreading out over everybody's heads. We're not really quite sure. The passage doesn't give us a lot of description. It doesn't even tell us how big the flames are. Like they could have been little or they could have been really big. But I'm betting that if 
that happened to us and we were in the room, we would all be pretty freaked out at floating things of fire over everybody's head. Um, but to the disciples, seeing fire like this would have actually meant something different than to you and me. They would have remembered how Moses wrote in the Hebrew scriptures about a pillar of fire that led the Israelites at night after they had walked across the Red Sea and led them through the wilderness to the promised land. The fire was a physical representation of God's presence, being with Israel and leading them and protecting them. And they would remember also how Moses told them in Exodus 40 that when they set up the tabernacle, which was their place of worship um, that was temporary, that pillar of fire came over the tabernacle to show that the priests could meet with God in that place. And they could have remembered also that in Second Chronicles 7, that pillar of fire comes over the temple that King Solomon built, again, to show that the temple is now where we can meet with God, where the Israelites could meet with God. And so for these disciples, seeing flames show up in a miraculous way above your friends' heads would have made you realize that something special is happening and that you were in the presence of God. So Luke keeps telling us what happened as we go along. Verse 4, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So the scene changes from these flames demonstrating that God is with them to the Holy Spirit descending into their bodies and they are filled with the Holy Spirit. And with his presence inside them comes power to do things that only the Spirit can produce. They start to talk in other languages or dialects. That's what the tongues means in this passage. They start to declare all the amazing things God has done over time. And the Holy Spirit miraculously enables them to speak in their own language, but have everybody else hearing them in their own native language that was in the the area. Let's read how that all plays out, starting in verse 5. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, which is all the people that have gathered for this huge feast. It says, at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in his own native tongue or his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocking said, They are filled with new wine. So thousands of people who heard this loud sound of the wind run to see what's happening. Just as they show up, the Holy Spirit 
who's now inside the disciples, enables them to speak in all these different languages. And if you look at this passage, Luke actually lists about 14 different people groups uh, who were present um, in his account. There could have been more, but there were at least these. So we get a taste of how many different languages were being spoken uh, at once. It's amazing to think about. And I love also that Luke says the crowd asked if these men were from Galilee and some of them accused the disciples of being drunk because they just couldn't understand what was going on. Now, asking if these people were from Galilee would be kind of like us asking if they were related to Homer Simpson, right? It was not a compliment. They were basically saying, these guys are too dumb to be able to speak all of these languages. Uh, And really, if you think about it, these little details like this are what make the Bible more reliable. We're getting this recap of the eyewitness accounts with all of the unflattering details also, uh, which if this was made up, you would leave those out. (laughs) So don't miss this, though. At the end, the people, even though they're accusing the disciples of being drunk, they also ask the right question. They say, what does this mean? And we're going to spend the rest of our time kind of unpacking that. We'll first look at what does this mean for the people who were in that first century? And then what does it mean for us? So what does this mean for the people in the audience, for those thousands of people that run to the scene and are trying to figure out what's going on? The meaning was actually pretty straightforward. The purpose of this miracle was to get the Jews' attention to get the people who were there to pay attention and to make it so that they could hear and understand the mighty works of God and the gospel in their own language. The Jews were actually used to God sending them signs and doing miracles. That was a normal way for God to interact with the Israel nation. And so seeing this helped them to pay attention and they actually expected God to do miracles. And so this would have pulled them in to go, oh, God's doing something. And once God gets their attention with this miracle, Peter jumps up and gives a sermon that shares the gospel very eloquently through the rest of chapter two. Uh, And I'd encourage you to go read that sometime. But God actually uses that sermon to bring over 3,000 people to place their trust in Christ that day from all those people who came running, Um, which is amazing. That in and of itself was an incredible purpose for the miracle. And as incredible as that is, uh, what does it mean for us is even more um, amazing to me. Uh, for, For from this point forward, God changed the way that he was going to relate to his people. Uh, Instead of leading his people through prophets or kings or through pillars of fire or burning bushes or other means, God decided to lead his people at this point by putting his own spirit inside of us. Instead of meeting with us in a tabernacle or a temple, God now tells us that our own bodies are his temple. And he wants to meet with us wherever we are. So each person now that believes in Jesus from the moment of this miracle forward receives God's spirit to live inside of them. It's actually really hard to describe and even wrap your head around how much having the God of the universe living inside of you changes things. Um, And we really can't do that justice in just one message. We could honestly probably do a whole sermon series on the Holy Spirit and the implications and the work that he does um, 
Aaron and I were joking about this. He's such a planner that if we tried to put that together, we're probably looking at like 2025 before we would get to it. So instead of waiting, um, I'm just going to focus on the single biggest area that I think is changed as a result of having God's Spirit inside us, and that is that God's Spirit gives us an eternal guarantee. And we'll unpack that as, a, as our miracle. So when this story, as you're reading it, when Luke tells it in Acts, he's really focused on the details, on the play-by-play of what's happening in real time as he's gathered it from the people who were there. And I don't think they really understood all that was happening at the time. I think it's actually very fair to say that the meaning of the event and how God was changing his relation to people um, unfolded as the disciples understood better the impacts of what God had actually done and begun to do differently from that point on. And a few years later, after this event, the Apostle Paul sends a letter to a group of believers in a town called Ephesus, which included an explanation of what kind of what led up to God putting his spirit inside us and the implications for everyone who believes. And so we're going to look at that. So that is in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 to 14. I encourage you to turn there because we'll be there for the rest of our time. Um, I'm going to read this from the NIV. Paul is writing and he says, And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. So we're going to unpack this into kind of four big thoughts. um, And it might feel like it's going out of order, but they actually flow. So here's the four big thoughts up front, and we'll walk through them. First thing that the Ephesians are credited with in this passage is that they heard the message of truth. They heard the gospel. And the second thing is that they believed the gospel. They believed it was true and that it applied to them personally. And the third thing is that when they believed, they were given the Holy Spirit as a seal. And then even though it's first in the reading, it actually comes last, that the fourth thing is that they were included in Christ. So we're going to kind of walk through that step by step. And I actually think it's really important for us to um, understand this and have a firm grasp on it. Because there was a time when I definitely did not. I, I remember when, when I was younger, I didn't get how all of this stuff worked. And I used to go to bed at night and pray to God that he would forgive me for my sins. Right? I would kind of confess all the things I had done wrong that day. Um, and then I would also do this blanket prayer of just kind of like, God, go ahead and forgive me for anything that I forgot to confess um, that I maybe didn't remember doing, or maybe I didn't know it was wrong. You know, just kind of this blanket, go ahead and forgive me for anything else. Because I was actually kind of afraid, like what would happen if I hadn't confessed and asked for forgiveness for sins and died without having done that? I thought that was a big part of it. Um, And then I'd actually also pray, you know, God, go ahead and please forgive me for what I'm planning to do tomorrow because I usually had a good plan for something tomorrow that was not good. Um, So I was clearly confused about how forgiveness worked, and um, I'm hoping that as we walk through some of this, it will clear up. Um, But you'll also see, I mean, for me, as I understood this better, it really led me to much more freedom and joy in my relationship with God 
And for those of you who already get this, I would encourage you to still hang and, and walk through this again because reminding ourselves of this helps us to help others who are like I was, who are stuck in this kind of cycle of fear and guilt. And those things were not intended for the people who follow Jesus to be a regular part of their lives. Um, And so this can help us to help them. So let's look at these four kind of points together. The first one is that the Ephesians heard the message of truth, the gospel. So we're going to unpack the gospel. In order to say that they heard the message of truth, that means that they first heard that they could not approach God on their own terms. They couldn't be good enough or worthy of God's acceptance based on their own track record or their performance. Um, That wasn't how God allowed people to come to him. And this is part of what Aaron talked about last week. If you were here for the sermon last week, it went along really well. Jesus actually had to slow down with the crowd after he had fed the 5,000 and he had to talk to the crowd and the Pharisees and the disciples to level set that they had to understand the bad news that they had a need that they couldn't satisfy on their own. Um, And he had to do that before he could give them the good news that he was the bread of life, that he was the only thing that could satisfy their true spiritual need. And for us to understand the gospel, we all have to understand that we fall short of the perfect moral standard that is required by God to be in his presence. And it's hard news to swallow, but I think when we're honest, we all know that we haven't done everything right in our lives, and that is enough to separate us from God's presence. God has every right as the creator to define his terms and to say how people can and can't come into his presence. And the bad news is our sin prevents us from coming into his presence. So that's the bad news that has to precede the gospel, that without help outside of ourselves, we are all headed to, or maybe even currently, are in a bad place where we are separated from God. And it's because of the things we've done that violate God's standards That is what's meant when the Christians say the word sin. But the good news of the gospel is that God, because he loves every single one that he created, every single person, he decided to make a way to care for our sins that have separated us from him. He chose to sacrifice his only son, Jesus, who was perfect, who was without sin, instead of us. He decided to put all of our sins onto Jesus and pour out all of his wrath and all of the punishment that our sins deserved. He poured them out onto Jesus on the cross. And Jesus took it, took all of that wrath and punishment so that God wouldn't have to pour out his wrath and punishment on us. Out of love for us, Jesus volunteered to step in front of that train, to step in as our substitute, to be our savior, and to take our penalty for us in order to rescue us from the penalty of separation, of actually death that we deserve. We were standing under a death penalty. And then after that happened, God raised Jesus from the dead which showed that all of God's wrath and punishment, which we deserved, had been spent, had been taken care of, and Jesus took care of it all. And the implication is now that God 
he isn't standing around waiting for us to mess up so that he can get mad at us again or build up more wrath towards us. His justice has been completely satisfied because the penalty for our sins wasn't ignored. It wasn't ignored at all. It was actually fully paid by Jesus. One of my favorite passages is Colossians 2, verses 13 to 14, and I'll just summarize it, but it talks about how God took the list of charges, the list of sins that we had committed, and he nailed them to the cross as the crimes that Jesus died for. And then that passage goes on to say that the debt associated with those sins, with those crimes, was canceled from our account as God forgave us for our sins because Jesus had paid the price. His life was the price. And his resurrection that comes later shows us that that payment was actually complete. Nothing was left to be paid because otherwise he would have stayed in the grave. He would have not been able to rise again, which is amazing. So that's the gospel. The second piece that comes from Paul's explanation is that the Ephesians, they heard the gospel and they believed that the gospel was true and applied to them. The, the Bible tells us Clearly that the payment for sin is complete, but it won't apply to everyone. Only the people who believe that Jesus' payment is the only possible way to take care of our sins will have that payment applied to our account. Only the people who trust that God's way is the way and who abandon any other efforts that we might make on our own um, or someone else might say is the way to go, um, Only the ones who trust that God's way is the only way, those are the ones who Jesus' payment applies to. And to believe in that really just means that you've realized that all your attempts to get God on your side or to be better than the serial killers or your crazy neighbors or your attempts to clean yourself up, um, none of those things are good enough. None of those work. You've realized that and you believe meaning that you realize that God has provided Jesus as the only solution that actually works. Your efforts aren't enough, can never be enough, but Jesus' efforts were absolutely enough and are completely enough. So we simply transfer our trust when we believe to, from our own efforts to the work that someone else did on our behalf. And we trust in Jesus' death on the cross as the only payment that will save us from having to pay for our sins. That's what it means to have faith in Jesus. We also trust that God is going to follow through when he says that he'll accept Jesus' payment for our sins and no longer hold us guilty for them. When we transfer our trust like that, it's just amazing and it gives us this really great new hope. Um, And the Bible kind of unpacks this in two big words that I'm just going to talk through briefly. The first one is a a transaction that is legal, and we call it justification in church circles, and the Bible uses that word as well. Uh, Romans 5, uh, Romans chapter 5, verse 1, says that we have been justified by faith. Our faith, our belief in Jesus, has justified us, which means that there's this legal transaction that has happened. And the legal transaction says that our account has been cleared from all of the things that we did wrong, all of our sins, and it's wiped out. And instead, the account is credited with the perfect record that Jesus has of no crimes, of no sins, 
the negative record of our sins was paid for on the cross when Jesus died. And that includes all of our sin. And if it includes all of our sin, it means it includes all of our sins up to today, but also up to when we die. He died for all of our sins at the time he died on the cross. And legally, he says that we are now declared righteous. We are now declared to have a perfect record because Jesus' righteousness was applied to our account. So that's what justification means. And a couple weeks ago, Aaron talked about that in more depth. Dig into it if you want. The second transaction that happens uh, is that we are given a new nature. And we tend to use the word regeneration as a way to describe this new nature. And sometimes people, when they say that they've been born again, they're really referring to this aspect of what happens when we believe. Um, We are given by God a new nature when we trust in the gospel. And Romans 6 uses this great illustration. Romans 6 verses 6 through 8 tells us that when we believe, our old way of living was actually crucified with Christ. It was actually put to death and replaced with this new nature. They don't coexist. It's dead. Um, And we've been given this new nature that, unlike our old nature, actually desires to please God. We can still choose to sin in our new nature, but we can also now choose to honor God. And choosing to sin is just completely inconsistent with who we now are, but it's still a possibility. With this new nature comes this desire to do what is right. And we now actually have this genuine option to live our lives in a new and better and more free way that actually honors God. Unlike our old nature, our old nature is actually described as being enslaved to sin, as being under the dominion of sin, completely under its control. But our new nature we have this choice. We get, to fo- we get to choose to follow God and choose to honor Jesus instead of being controlled by our sin. One illustration that I heard that was so helpful for me is that if I, right now I'm under the rule of the U.S. government, but if I go to Canada, no one in the CHP is going to pull me over for a ticket in Canada because I'm not under their jurisdiction anymore. And that's kind of how this works. Our old nature It's like our old citizenship. And our new nature is this new citizenship that we have, this new place. And now we're under a different system. And it's it's tempting to get them confused. But we have this new way that we get to live, which is just amazing. So in addition to those transactions that happen when we trust the gospel, there's a third one that I want to talk about. And that's continuing in the Ephesians 1 passage in verse 14. There we're told... That when we believed, they were given the Holy Spirit as this seal, guaranteeing their redemption. And if you think about the seal, right? A seal can also be translated as a deposit or a guarantee. And we're given that by God. God is making the guarantee. And it demonstrates that God's work on the cross really is finished. That's why he can make this guarantee. And it also shows that God's committed to carry us through this life into eternity to be with him forever. He's so committed that he's putting himself in the line. So just as the resurrection showed that the payment for sin was complete, 
the presence of the Holy Spirit within us is really meant to show us that God's plan to redeem us and bring us into, inter- into eternity with him is going to happen and to have such certainty that we know that he's going to make it happen. The Holy Spirit is the agent, is the thing that is going to carry us through to eternity. And the God of the universe is the one holding the guarantee, saying it's going to happen, which is amazing when you think about it. Um, so then... There's still one more piece to this progression that I want to unpack, and that's number four. The believers were included in Christ. And that can be kind of a complicated term, but it really means that all of us who trust Christ as our Savior are connected with all the other believers through God's Spirit. And we're connected into Christ's family that we call the church. Uh, And so we'll use the words included with Christ or united with Christ to really mean the same thing, which is that because this has happened, we are all now family. And Romans 8 actually puts it in some really beautiful terms. Let's look at Romans 8.14. It says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons or daughters of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, But you've received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father, which is saying, our adoption allows us to call God our daddy, our father. And the spirit himself bears witness, or tells us, bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. So Paul is saying in Romans that we've been adopted as children of God And verse 17 goes on to tell us, if we kept reading, that we're so embedded into God's family that we share Christ's inheritance, right? We're written into the will. We're written into the family trust. We share in part of Christ's inheritance. We've been elevated from this human status to being adopted by the creator of the universe and welcomed into his family, Let that sink in a little bit. It's incredible to think that God would do that. Uh, We actually, my wife and I, adopted our uh, youngest, Ellie, when she was a newborn. Um, But it actually took six months after the adoption to finalize it legally. And so we had to wait quite a while. And when it was finally finished, I remember just feeling completely relieved. I now had this paper, right, this signed declaration from a judge that guaranteed there was no way that anyone from the birth family or anyone else could make a claim that could take her away from us. And I think it's a beautiful illustration of our adoption into God's family. Because for me, I think I felt a very similar relief when I realized that God gave us his spirit to guarantee that I was part of his family and going to be with him forever. It really allowed me to shift from worrying if I had prayed the right prayer or confessed my sins the right way, or had asked for forgiveness, or forgotten something, to more like, what does it mean to be part of God's family? What does he want to do with me and, and through me now that we're connected like this? It, it changed that relationship completely to have that knowledge that it's settled. And so there's this freedom, for me anyway, that came from knowing that my forgiveness for every single sin I have committed or will commit, was settled on the cross. When he died, when Christ died, and when he was raised from the dead, 
it showed me that it was taken care of. And that allowed for me to really grow in joy and, and enjoy life much more. Um, instead of just always trying to be better or be good enough for God somehow, um, I realized that wasn't what it depended on. So really, the miracle, as we wrap up, the miracle is that the Spirit of God is given to us by God at the moment we believe, really to try to show us that our adoption is finalized. And the Spirit stays with us to remind us every day when we doubt that we are the children of God. We never have to wonder if we're good enough or if we'll be abandoned or if he'll give up on us or if he still loves us because he's put the spirit in us to keep telling us the truth, keep reminding us of what he's already told us through his word and through um, what Jesus has done. So God's decided, really, that we are in the family based on Jesus' work on the cross, and he's finalized our adoption by putting his spirit in us as that eternal guarantee. And I like this imagery of thinking that the Holy Spirit is our signed adoption papers and that God is the judge who has signed that declaration. No one's going to overrule him. He says it's done. It's done. We don't have to worry. It's just so easy for us to forget um, or let these kinds of things crowd let the noise of our lives crowd this out and forget who we belong to. And so I think we need this reminder regularly. And that's why we do a lot of the things we do at Element. We come back to the gospel very often. And it may seem repetitive, but it's so important for us to come back and be reminded of these truths. Um, it's really just our human nature to drift and to, to forget. And, and we need to come back. That's why we repeat a lot of the things that we do each week. Like we're going to do communion today. I'd like to invite the band to go ahead and come up. Um, we celebrate communion each week as a response to what God has done for us. And it really is intended to be a moment for us to come together united as believers, as part of God's family, and participate in this together, but also individually to reflect on what Jesus has done for us and to go to the table and break the cracker as a way to remember that Jesus' body was broken for us on the cross as he died. And then we dip it in the wine or the grape juice as another reminder that Jesus' blood was spilled on the cross, that it cost him his life um, in order to die on the cross. But that because of it, our sins are now paid for. And forgiveness is freely offered to us as this incredible gift that cost Jesus his life but is free to everyone who believes in him. So I'd invite you to do that during the songs. And then also, if you uh, need prayer today, there will be some um, folks in the back who would love to pray with you. Or if any of this is confusing or or didn't make sense, um, they would be happy to, to chat with you and try to help kind of clear things up. Because I think if this is not settled for you, it is one of the most important things to explore. Eternity is a really long time, and it would not be good to go into um, eternity without at least examining it honestly and deciding for yourself that you're certain of how things are going to play out. Um, So feel free to chat with them in the back or come catch me or one of the other leaders at Element during the baptism this afternoon. We'd love to talk to you more about this. I want to leave you with just one last thought, kind of, 
Imagine with me for a second, what would it look like or what would it feel like if each of us in this room really knew for certain that we belong to God's family forever? I shared a little bit of how it impacted me, but what does that look like for you if we know deep down that our adoption for eternity is guaranteed by God himself? What might change? What are you facing this week or worrying about that you would look at a little differently? knowing that eternity is taken care of? Or what kind of decisions do you have in front of you that you'd approach differently, knowing that the end game's solved, um, that there's that certainty ahead of you? Um, and I think, what about the anxieties or the, the shame or the things that just weigh us down that we fall into over and over again? How would they take on a new pr- perspective, knowing that the Holy Spirit is in us, to carry us through to the end, that it will end up well. It will end up great. We will be in God's family forever. I think those things will change as we think about that perspective. And I want to encourage you this week to get together with some friends or with your gospel community and really go through some of the questions or these passages and explore this together. Think about it. Dream about it a little bit of how this could change and then encourage each other and remind each other of the truths that God has said for us in his word. And I think we will see just an incredible freedom come in our day-to-day as we rest in God's finished work. Well, I know this has been encouraging for me to study, but I hope it has been for you. And I hope that this gives you a little... Maybe a new perspective of the miracle of God putting his spirit inside us as a guarantee for our eternity. Let me pray for us. Father God, you are so good. And you are such a good father. I love the picture of your just relentless pursuit of us. And how you have made a way to save us through Christ that Um, was the only way that could happen without destroying us. And uh, you have continued to reveal yourself to us, to draw us to you, and to shower us with grace upon grace, gift after gift, as you display that you are a good God, that you are full of love, that you are endlessly patient, and that you love us. You love us as a father, as as our Father, as you have adopted us into your family. I still can't get over and still continue to love thinking about belonging to you. And I just pray that you will continue to use that in each of us to to soften our hearts towards you, to draw us closer to you, and to really allow us to rest in your love and allow it to overflow out of us into the people around us. Let them see how you have changed us and let them see your love through our lives as we just enjoy being united with you. I thank you for all these things and for this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.